The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. So great. So good to be here. Last week when you miss, you're like a pent-up bull. But I sure appreciate Dick jumping in on a short notice as he did, and we have men ready to do that at a moment's notice, and I appreciate it. I need to thank so many of you for your... uh, Timely messages and texts and cards seem like any time I got a little down, boom, here came the perfect verse or something. And it just made me feel so blessed and encouraged me all the time. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, Round one is done. Feeling great right now. So uh, onward we go. But uh, it is well with my soul. And praise, praise God for that. Well, let's get back into Daniel, and uh, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you this morning for your amazing grace. And as I look at Daniel, this amazing book, to realize written so long ago, and yet to be so accurate in how it applies to us today in such wonderful details. So I pray this morning that each one of us, that you would open our hearts Remove anything within us that will interrupt the leading of your spirit. And may we glean from your word the unsearchable truths that you have for each one of us. And it's in Christ's precious name I pray. Amen. Also, one thing I should share is I broke a tooth last week, and I'm just hoping it doesn't look bad from there. Um, I can't get it fixed, obviously, because of uh, potential infection. So if I smile too much, just call me Larry the Lumberjack for a while. <laughs> we'll get through it. So, Well, Daniel chapter 4, if you'll turn there. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was such a prideful king. His ego was continually out of control. And, and even with the amazing truths that he learned from Daniel, Daniel's three friends, and God himself, he always came back to number one. He always lifted himself up as the most important person in his story. And so I want to just take a few moments and do a quick background since it's been a couple of weeks. But the key to understanding these early chapters and perhaps the entire book of Daniel is found right at the beginning in Daniel 1 verse 2. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So by this symbolic act, Nebuchadnezzar was asserting that he and his gods were more powerful than Jehovah. But as verse 2 says, it was the Lord that gave them into his hands. And, and, it, and we know that God permits others to triumph over his people for his own reasons. Generally, it's for punishment for sin. But the temporary victory of evil persons does not in any way show that God is weaker than any. But this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar thought. And so these opening chapters of Daniel show that Jehovah is trying to teach this proud monarch that neither his gods nor Nebuchadnezzar is that significant, and that God, Jehovah, is in control of all things. Now, God had already been trying to teach him that. The first story in Daniel that we saw a couple of weeks ago 
was Nebuchadnezzar's story of the dream he had about the great image. It was a figure of gold, silver, brass, iron, and Nebuchadnezzar was represented by the golden head of the image. And this was God's acknowledgement that, yes, his kingdom was great, and it was very significant, but there was coming a time when it was going to end. And that at the end of all things, Christ would come and rule and reign with all his people. The next story in Daniel concerns the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar built himself. He wasn't happy with this image. He was certainly happy he was the head and not the toe. But he asked himself, why can't my kingdom go on forever? And so he erected this 90-foot statue of solid gold, 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. And what Nebuchadnezzar was saying, no, my kingdom will endure forever. It will always be glorious. And so I will create this as, as an emphasis and a representation of that fact. So God now has to teach Nebuchadnezzar a serious lesson. And so we, we come to our text this morning in chapter 4, and we see that Nebuchadnezzar, his I have built. I have built. Daniel 4 today has to do with another vision, but it must be seen against the context of what I've just shared with you. And so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream again, beginning in verse 10. The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in its food and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold a watcher. A holy one came down from heaven, and he proclaimed aloud and said, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High, and remember that phrase, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. After receiving this dream, he consulted the Chaldeans as he often did, but they were unable to, do, to tell him what it was about. And so he returned to Daniel, who understood at once. Daniel saw the vision referring to the king. And so the scripture tells us that he was troubled in his heart and he got alone for an hour. Have you ever had somebody that you were praying for, that you were trying to lift up, that you were trying to draw to God. And as they grew close and you began to see improvements, you got excited, 
but then all of a sudden they fell again, and it just broke your heart. I think this is the kind of relationship Daniel had with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had showed signs. He had praised Daniel's God when the first dream was interpreted. He had given credit to God and to Daniel, but he always kept falling back to himself. And so Daniel, his heart's broken because he understands what this dream is about. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar said, look, don't be bothered. I understand this isn't a good vision. Just give me the truth. And so Daniel begins to explain the vision, and he explained that the tree was Nebuchadnezzar. God had created him to be a great figure to fill the world with his empire. And those of the earth were nourished by him. The birds, the branches, the beasts, everything was for him. And so Daniel is telling him, look, you are great. You have a great kingdom. But it was from God. And instead of giving God the glory, you've taken it for yourself. And because your heart was filled with pride, God is going to have to teach you a lesson. So God was going to cause this great tree to be cut down, but he was going to spare Nebuchadnezzar's life. And therein is a beautiful lesson of grace and mercy. Because God could have wiped him out instantly, but he didn't. He chose to put Nebuchadnezzar into a seven-year-long, very difficult form of life to teach him a lesson. God sets up who he will, and he brings down who he will. And when he sets up a man, he can do it from the basis of men. So the story goes on to show that this is exactly what happened. So we find Nebuchadnezzar out on the porch of his palace, and he's looking out over the magnificent Babylon. And after everything that has happened to him, Daniel 4, verse 30, the king answered and he said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Wouldn't you like to get a hammer and hit him on the head or something? I mean, how does somebody get so locked into themselves that after repeated visions and repeated lessons, it just goes back to me? And so while he was still uttering this wonderful thing, verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High, there's that phrase again, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He was literally turned into an animal for seven years and lived like one out in the wilderness. But the key is verse 30. It contains Nebuchadnezzar's boast, I have built. Look at what I have done. 
he failed to give God glory. And that is the true expression of Nebuchadnezzar's heart, and it is the true heart of all humanity apart from the grace of God. We often think that we're responsible for what we do, the things we create, our accomplishments. We look at what we have done, and we're proud of what we have done, and we don't stop to think that it is God who gives the ability. It is God who leads us to make the right choices. It's God who leads us to follow the right paths. And if we're not careful, we're prone to draw in the security for ourselves as well. And I can tell you, being a pastor, you're not exempt from that either. You know, you can preach a message and someone will come up afterwards and go, man, that was great. Boy, that spoke to my heart the way you said that. And you can go, uh-huh, was pretty good, wasn't it? But then I'm reminded quickly of the commentaries I've studied and the giants whose shoulders I've stood on and the Holy Spirit who guides my mind. I can, I can remember one, one experience very vividly when we were going through the book of John, and, and it's, it's never left my mind. I was, I was typing a section between a point, and you know how sometimes your mind just takes off and flows? And I just typed through this whole page, and I looked at it, and I thought, wow, boy, that was good. And I could immediately feel the spirit go, it was, wasn't it? Ah, yes. Thank you, God. All glory goes to him. He is the author and the foundation of all things. And without him, nothing consists. And this is such an important lesson that Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn. Now, I told you to remember the phrase, the most high God. And this is very critical to our story this morning because we find this name six times in this chapter and it's never occurred in the book yet. You find it uh, in a slightly different form in verse 2, the Most High God, and then you find it exactly in verses 17, 24, 25, 32, and 34. So what is the significance of this name? Well, if, if you get out of concordance, and you begin to look up the phrase, you'll find that the first time it appears is in the book of Genesis. And it surrounds Abraham's return from the battle against the kings of, uh, that he was battling, and he came uh, to Melchizedek. And we're told there that Melchizedek was the priest of the Most High God, ruler of heaven and earth. So the phrase explains the name. It's not referring to God as Redeemer. It's not referring to God's wisdom or any of his other titles. It relates to God's sovereignty. The Most High God is the God who rules not only heaven, but earth. A bit further in the Old Testament, we come to Isaiah 14, and we have a description of the thoughts that went through the mind of Satan when he was rebelling against God. And one of the things Satan said is that he wished to be like the Most High. Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, why did Satan say that? Why didn't he say, I'll make myself like the Redeemer? 
Why did he not say, I'll be like the most wise God? Why did he not call out some of God's attributes? Because he had no interest in any of that. His interest was in becoming sovereign like God. He wanted to be like God in his sovereign rule. And he wanted to take God down and put himself in that position. He wanted sovereignty. This, or that is the meaning of the Most High God. And here, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, look at this great Babylon I, Nebuchadnezzar, have built. But God replied, that's not a glory that's yours. And he's going to deal with them. Of course, this is not just Satan's sin. This is not just Nebuchadnezzar's sin. It's our sin. The greatest sin of all is that we take glory to ourselves instead of giving credit to God. When we do well, we think it is our achievement. When we do badly, we think it's someone else's fault. It is the perspective of fallen humanity. We want to feel good about ourselves, and we want to continually lift ourselves up. And we see this in our country as less and less credit is given to God and more and more credit is given to the human spirit. And can we expect any less from God in judgment that he's given to the other powers before us? So look at Nebuchadnezzar's punishment because the punishment is significant and it literally affects you and I today. The next part of the story is about Nebuchadnezzar's punishment and it is specific to Nebuchadnezzar. It's not a matter of God going down a list and saying, well, maybe I'll punish him with this or maybe I'll punish him with that. When God caused the king to be lowered from the pinnacle of pride to the baseness of insanity and to be associated with the beasts of the field and behave like them, God was saying by the punishment that this is the result of men giving glory to themselves. He was at the top, and now he was headed to the bottom. Now let me show you what happens when men and women take glory for themselves. You have it in Romans chapter 1, where God says that he gives men up. When he gives them up, he doesn't give them up to nothing. Rather, he gives them up to the working out of the moral laws of the universe that he's established. And these laws decree that if you will not have God, and therefore will not have truth, holiness, justice, righteousness, and all the other good gifts that come from him, you will inevitably have the opposite. The first chapter of Romans shows this. When men turn from God to themselves... Romans 1.24, God gave them up to uncleanness. Romans 1.25, God gave them up to a reprobate mind. Or excuse me, uh, Romans 1.26, God gave them up to vile affections. And then Romans 1.28, God gave them up to a reprobate mind. Now, this is how this works. You would have thought that the reprobate mind would have come first, Right? to have the mind to do all these things. But watch what happens here. Because men and women 
who should be ashamed of the things they're doing are not. And so what happens is you have to recognize that this is the way the depraved process works. First, there is uncleanness. For example, fornication, adultery. Then, after that, comes the sexual perversions and everything that goes with it. And what follows is a reprobate mind, whereby men and women who should be ashamed, as I said, are not. And what they say is, not only are we doing these things, we will continue to do them. But we consider these things right. And in doing so, we demand that you recognize we're right. So the process grows until they're left to their own minds and they live in that depraved state and demand that everyone accept them in that depraved state. Now let me tell you really quickly, what should be our response to these people? What should be our response when people are given up to their own minds? There is only one response. Absolute love. Absolute mercy. Absolute grace. Going after them, being Christ to them, showing the love of God. When a mind is depraved, you're not going to get them with criticism. And one of the biggest things that irks me beyond end with the church is how we sit in judgment over sinners when we're no better. Our goal is to show absolute, unconditional love because the only thing that will change their heart is the Holy Spirit. And the only way you can reach them is with love and compassion. And I pray that as, as a church, as Grace Fellowship Church, that we would continually be going into the world not in judgment, because by the grace of God, that's us. But let us shower on them mercy, grace, and love. Tell the story of what Christ has done for us. Live Christ before them. Put everything before us and give them the grace that Christ would demand. When Christ was on earth, he ate with publicans and sinners. He walked among sinners. The sick needed the physician, not the healthy. And he showed mercy and forgiveness. And we should be no less in our church today. So imagine being given up by God to a mind that no longer seeks him. Where is the church? That is our role. And when people begin to understand the love of God and see it in a working fashion, it's a magnet. It will draw people. The love and compassion draws them. So, so who are we? What is our role? Well, let me suggest our proper role by an amazing contrast. When I mentioned Satan and his rebellion earlier, I pointed out that sin was taking God's glory to himself. If we want to see the role we should have, we need only go back to before the fall of Satan to what he was doing. In Ezekiel 28, the prophet describes Satan as standing upon the holy mountain of God, directing the worship of all creation to God and interpreting the demands of God to creation. So, so get this now. Here's what Satan's role was. 
He was Lucifer. Lucifer means light bearer. He was the one who bore the worship of creation to God and then reflected God's glory back to creation. There is not a better illustration in all of Scripture of the role of you and I. We are to be light bearers. We are to reflect the absolute glory of God to a dying world. Satan had the absolute most incredible role ever given by God in the history of creation. And he blew it because of pride. When you and I come to Christ and recognize our need for the Savior, and when he draws us to him and we realize that his death on Calvary paid the price for our sins, and we realize, I'm saved. I am eternally secure. There is no greater role for you and I than to reflect that glory back to man. Look what God has done for me. Look how he's taken this sinner, this vile, wretched sinner, undeserving of God's grace, undeserving of his favor, on my way to a Christless eternity. And because he loved me with his life and rescued me out of the slave market of sin and set me with him for eternity, I can't express it enough. I want the world to know that he is the only one do the glory. And I want the world to know that when people see me, they see him. Because that's what draws people to God. We have an amazing opportunity, folks. An amazing opportunity God has laid out before us in such a beautiful fashion. All he asks is to reflect him. Reflect him in your marriages. Reflect him with your children. Reflect him in your neighborhood and your job. Reflect him wherever you are. It's amazing what God does. Well, what about Nebuchadnezzar? I think he finally got the message. At the end of Daniel, verse 34, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I bless the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What a testimony. What an amazing testimony. God's mercy spared Nebuchadnezzar, but he put him through the ringer. And may I tell you something? When he loves you, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, he will put you through it because he loves you with an eternal love. And he will draw you to himself, whatever it takes. God is not only able to humble them. He does humble them. But as we humble ourselves, 
we find ourselves exalted in the role that God has called us to fill, that of light bearers, reflectors of God's glory. This morning, would you consider yourself a light bearer? That is a question we need to ask from this particular story of Nebuchadnezzar. Is he glowing from you? Is the major focus of your life to cast all the glory on him and watch him work? You see, we can be the best we can be and we can do everything possible to achieve everything we can and accomplish everything we can and then sit back and say, it's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. That's what God is looking for. And I trust that will be the motivation of your heart this morning. Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for the story of Nebuchadnezzar, how you wouldn't let up until this king, this worldly king, got the message. But Lord, it's such a powerful story for all of us to recognize that you work in and through all of us. We don't have to shoulder the burden ourselves. We simply need to cast all our cares upon you because you care for us. And you're using the circumstances of life to weave a tapestry in a beautiful way that can cause us to walk with you and see your hand in everything we do. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Encourage each one of us this morning.